0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, my name is John Hamry. I'm the president of CSIS. Uh, when we have events like this, especially with outside groups, we always do a little safety announcement. I'm not worried about the secretary. He's got guys with guns back there. He's to, they're going to take care of him. But I'm responsible for all of you. So if there if we have something we have to do, I'll ask you to follow our instructions. The exits are right behind me. This is the one that's closest to the stairs. We're going to go down, take two left-hand turns, go across the street to National. Geographic, and uh, I'll, they've got a wonderful show on right now. I'll pay for your ticket, so we'll we'll be just fine if anything happens. Um, we're really honored and delighted to have Secretary Esper with us today. Uh, the Global Strategy Forum is something that we've had going now for about fourteen years. I uh, we were so grateful that uh, I don't remember quite, but for eleven years, eleven years and. And uh, back then, it was Fin Mechanica, now Leonardo, that has always been consistently underwriting this effort for all of us so that we're able to talk about some of the most important security issues of our time. Uh, we're very lucky to have Secretary Esper with us today. This is uh, Think of anybody that has more on his plate every hour than this guy and that he still took time uh, from that and came to join us we're very grateful for that i'm going to turn to bill lynn we've had the privilege of being friends and colleagues for 30 years and uh, bill let me ask you to come up and introduce the secretary and get us started for real thank you all for coming bill please
1: Thanks Thanks very very much, much, John, John, and uh, uh, thanks thanks to uh, CSIS for, as John John said, 11 years of uh, partnerships through uh, name changes and evolutions. Leonardo, we've had this uh, great partnership with CSIS due to to John's leadership here at CSIS and Kath's organizational skills, uh, Kath Hicks organizational skills, putting this together every year, and and, uh, frankly, getting uh, uh, speakers like uh, Secretary Esper. my role is to, to introduce the secretary, and and John and I have been in positions to see just how hard a job uh, that that he has. And and the hard part is is not what you will see today—public speeches, the press, uh, uh, even testifying to Congress. The the, the hard part uh, really in small rooms uh, with a small group of people or, or alone, making the tough decisions for the, the country, our, our security. Uh, the future of the country and, and of course the lives of the men and women in uniform depend on the decisions uh, that he makes. That's, that's the, uh, the tough part of the job and we're uh, I think very uh, fortunate to have somebody such as Mark uh, in that role. Uh, to know Mark is to know the heart and mind of a, of a soldier. It began with uh, the training and combat experience as a paratrooper from the revered 101st Infantry Division, 101st Airborne Division, leading uh, soldiers in battle during the first Gulf War in 1990 and 91. If you remember, the battle plan then was uh, a a big left hook. Uh, On the left side of that left hook was the 101st and and Mark and and his battalion. Uh, That led to the the rapid uh, defeat of the Iraqi uh, enemy and the the rescue of, of Kuwait the elimination of the threat there. After 10 years of active duty, Mark began his second career, uh, built on his West Point background and his experience as a soldier. Today, he's distinguished not only by that military career, but also by an impressive range of senior positions across many walks of life, in government, in industry, on Capitol Hill, and in the Pentagon. Mark's think tank experience includes being Chief of Staff at the Heritage Foundation on Capitol Hill. He was a senior policy advisor to former Senator Chuck Hagel. He was a professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he He was the policy director for the House Armed Services Committee. And then finally, he was the national security advisor to the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Bill Frist. In business and industry, he was the Chief Operating Officer of the Aerospace Industries Association. He, and He was the Executive Vice President the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Global Intellectual Property Center, and then finally as Vice President at Raytheon. At the Pentagon, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Negotiations Policy, and then most recently, the Secretary of the Army. Today, he's our 27th United States Dep- Secretary of Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Secretary Mark Esper.
2: Well, good morning everyone, and Bill, thank you for that very kind introduction. I've, I've had the privilege of knowing you for, for many, many years now. And, and John Hamry, so good to see you again. I've, I've known John since, uh, boy, late 90s when I was on the Hill, and uh, he was, uh, you were running CSS then as well. As, as I, I recall, recall, and uh, we've, we've had, had a lot of many, many years, years together, together conversations. conversations. He's a, a great friend, a mentor in many ways, so I, I appreciate your service to our country as well, so thank you. Thanks also to CIS uh, and, um, and uh, Kathleen for hosting this uh, important discussion. This is now the third year in a row I've uh, had the opportunity to speak here. Uh, it's, it's always great. The theme of this year's Global Security Forum is timely as emerging technologies will fundamentally transform the character of warfare in years to come. This is not a new phenomenon, however. Our history is replete with examples of the momentous impact of technological change and advancement on warfare. In fact, we are approaching the 100th anniversary of one such time, namely the experiment that ultimately led to the creation of the United States Air Force. As we all know, after World War I, Brigadier General Billy Mitchell, one of the earliest proponents of air power, convinced Congress to test where the aircraft could effectively bomb ships at sea. His unit successfully demonstrated that they could by easily sinking a captured German battleship. General Mitchell's continued advocacy for air power, despite years of resistance from his superiors, ultimately changed the future of warfare. A decade after his death, the United States made the U.S. Air Force an independent service. Nearly a century after his bold experiment, we are, are reminded of General Mitchell's foresight as we stand up the United States Space Force, a force that will ensure America's dominance in the newest warfighting domain. Now, with each generation come new transformational technologies. History has taught us that those who are first to harness such innovation often gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield for the many years that follow. The National Defense Strategy helps us to do just that as it guides our efforts to develop new capabilities and adapt the force to a security environment shaped by new threats from our strategic competitors. The NDS prioritizes China first and Russia second in this era of great power competition. Both of these revisionist powers, as we know, are trying to use emerging technologies to alter the landscape of power and reshape the world in their favor, and often at the expense of others. Beijing, for example, is combining direct state investment, forced technology transfer, and intellectual property theft to narrow the gap between U.S. and Chinese equipment and weapon systems, while also developing the asymmetric capabilities to counter our strengths. Indeed, the Chinese government is using its diplomatic, military, and economic power to advance its aims in ways that are heavy-handed, often threatening, and usually contrary to international rules and norms. As we speak, the Communist Party of China is using artificial intelligence to repress Muslim minority communities and pro-democracy demonstrators. In fact, the Party has constructed a 21st century surveillance state with unprecedented abilities to censor speech and infringe upon basic human rights. George Orwell would be proud. Now it is exporting its facial recognition software and monitoring systems abroad. Equally troubling is the manner in which it has acquired much of this technology. Beijing is determined to obtain and exploit American intellectual property and know-how at any cost. Since 2018, the Justice Justice Department has filed charges against Chinese nationals and entities in at least seven separate economic espionage cases, cases, including a conspiracy to steal trade secrets from a major U.S. semiconductor maker. Over the same time period, the Department has secured convictions and guilty pleas in at least six China-related espionage cases. These examples just scratch the surface. In recent years, the Department of Defense and its industry partners have been under continuous cyber siege by Chinese hackers. American universities and colleges have also become a prime target of Chinese espionage and exploitation efforts. In July, a part-time professor at the University of California, Los Angeles was found guilty of attempting to illegally export semiconductor chips with missile applications to China. And last year, the Justice Department indicted a University of Kansas researcher on fraud charges for conducting federally funded research while concealing that he was also working full time for a Chinese university. And on January 15th, it was revealed that this individual was part of a larger Chinese effort to recruit researchers and professors at American colleges and universities. Other types of nefarious Chinese government activities have occurred at leading academic institutions around the country. Despite widespread outreach, however, Beijing shows few, if any, signs of changing its ways. Rather, the government has recently passed new legislation that tightens its grip over any data that flows across its networks, including access to the confidential information of U.S. corporations. Addressing these threats requires us to rally the country behind our strategic competition with China and to take a whole-of-nation approach to the problem. Our success is contingent upon a cohesive strategy across public and private sectors. For the Department of Defense, this means overhauling our policies and reshaping the culture within the Department, between the Pentagon and industry, and indeed among our allies and partners around the world. There are some immediate steps we are taking now. First, investing in the cutting edge technologies of tomorrow will require DOD to make tough choices today. To ensure our finite resources advance our highest NDS priorities and make the most of every taxpayer dollar, we are divesting from legacy systems and lower priority activities. At the same time, we are implementing aggressive reforms to free up time, money, and manpower in all that we do. This will continue in the FY 2021 budget. One of the ways we are doing this is through the defense-wide review, which was launched the week after I was confirmed. In just four months of work, we focused on reforming the Fourth Estate, and we saved over $5 billion. We will use these savings to drive progress on critical technologies like artificial intelligence and hypersonic missiles. Second, a strong relationship between the department and the private sector is another imperative to maintaining and expanding our competitive edge. While the Pentagon continues to support cutting-edge innovation through government-funded research and development, we need to be fast followers of the commercial sector. It is the private sector that is leading on many fronts, such as cloud computing and machine learning. Beijing recognizes, recognizes this as well and continues to acquire U.S. technology through foreign investment, corporate acquisition, forced tech transfer, and other means. U.S. companies have unwittingly, or in some cases tacitly, Transferred IP, control, or made other compromises to the Chinese government in their pursuit of market access, low cost manufacturing, or other gains. When I meet and speak with CEOs, many of them now recognize the mistakes that were made. They are altering their strategies and adopting their approaches, adapting their operations to protect their companies and to help safeguard the United States. Many are now putting national security first. They are working alongside DOD to protect American innovation and our leadership in critical fields. At the Pentagon, we also acknowledge that we have changes to make. There are things we must do in order to work more closely with our nation's innovators, to become a better customer, and to partner in more effective ways. That is why we are implementing the most significant acquisition reform in years. Doing so will make it easier for companies of all sizes and sectors to do business with the department while enabling the Pentagon's leadership to more readily identify and provide the advanced solutions our warfighters need. I'd like to touch briefly on some of our highest priority technologies. First of all, there's been a lot of media attention on 5G, and for good reason. 5G offers the potential of lightning-fast, voluminous, and ubiquitous connectivity. China understands this, and that's why I've warned our allies and partners against allowing Chinese firms to put their security of their networks at risk with attractive, low-cost solutions. Doing so jeopardizes our military interoperability and intelligence sharing, and by extension, our partnerships. To counter this, we are encouraging Allied and U.S. tech companies to develop alternative 5G solutions and for our respective governments to do everything we can to enable their success. For its part, part, the Department of Defense recently launched a major initiative to accelerate U.S. 5G activity through collaborative experimentation with industry at four military bases around the country. A second priority is long-range fires. Winning future conflicts requires us to stay ahead of our competitors growing anti axis aerial denial capabilities which is why the Joint Force is developing capabilities that improve our lethality with greater speed at greater ranges. The department nearly doubled its long-term investment, almost five billion more in FY 2020 for hypersonic weapons alone over the next five years. And our FY 2021 budget will be even stronger. We have significantly ramped up flight testing and other experimentation so that we can accelerate the delivery of this capability in all its forms to our warfighters years earlier than previously planned. On a similar front, the NDS recognizes the rapidly evolving missile threats we face. While we continue to expand our conventional missile defense capabilities, we are also investing in advanced technologies, including the development of new sensors, interceptors, and advanced command and control systems to defend against hypersonics. And to ensure future dominance, we must not only generate the game-changing technologies first, we must also effectively deploy them. Take artificial intelligence, another priority uh, technology, We stood up the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the JAKE as we call it, to integrate the power of AI across the many levels of the department. Our goal is to get the warfighter into the cloud, to pull our vast streams of data, and to deliver AI capability out to the tactical edge as soon as possible. The JAKE not only plays a leading role in modernizing our warfighting systems, cultivating a premier, premier workforce, and strengthening our partnerships across the sector, but it is also developing principles for the lawful and ethical use of AI. Each of the technologies I mentioned has a cross-cutting impact on multiple warfighting domains, but the greatest concentration may be in our newest one, space. For the first time in 70 years, we have taken the historic step of creating a brand new military service, one that will fully leverage the incredible success of the private sector companies that are engaged in space. The United States Space Force promises to be another incubator for a whole new generation of advanced technologies. Much like uh, NASA was a breeding ground for a wide array of high-tech breakthroughs in the 20th century. Last week, General John Raymond was sworn in as the first Chief of Space Operations. His leadership, along with Air Force Secretary Barrett's, will be instrumental in fully standing up the service and preserving America's military superiority for decades to come. Just like many other things of great import, dominance in space will require a whole-of-government approach to maintain U.S. technological superiority and leadership. That means we must out-compete, out-innovate, and out-hustle everyone else. We have a solid history of doing so, and we are in a strong position going forward, with our largest R&D budget in 70 years. But all this is still not enough. We must also safeguard America's innovators, its companies, and our supply chains. Simply put, we must also be better at defense. That is why we are strengthening our foreign investment laws, our export controls, and our cyber defenses. Our allies and partners are beginning to take similar actions. Them doing so will be critical to our collective success. Finally, across the force, we are working to shed our risk-averse culture and establish an ecosystem where experimentation is incentivized and innovation is rewarded. We need a new generation of brilliant iconoclasts like General Billy Mitchell, innovators willing to challenge the status quo and conventional wisdom and we need forums such as these to unite government, academia, and the private sector in pursuit of common goals. Together, we must demonstrate to the world that America is the global leader in the responsible development, deployment, and employment of game-changing technologies. Unlike our adversaries, we will use these capabilities to keep the peace, to promote prosperity, to ensure security, to protect sovereignty, and to defend the international rules and norms that served us all well for decades. By doing so, the United States will, I believe, remain the responsible, values-based, global partner of choice for many, many more years to come. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to our discussion.
3: So much, Secretary, ask for coming as you said. You've you've been very kind, as Secretary of the Army, to be here several times, and it's a delight to have you here, as Secretary of Defense. Um, let's before we get into the meat of the discussion, let's get one top of the you know top of the front page issue um, resolved or covered. Um, there's been back and forth between the department and press on injuries in Iraq. Can you just? This seems like a brush fire that need not continue. Can you just? Talk, talk a little, a little bit about, about the degree to which the Pentagon is open to sharing information with the public about injuries uh, sustained in Iraq during Germany, the Iranian, Iranian, Iranian missile
2: strike. Well, we're fully, fully committed, committed to being transparent about what happens, but we need to make sure we're accurate and uh, that we categorize things properly, and that's that's our commitment, and it's not just Iraq. It's wherever, wherever troops are engaged, and uh, that's that's our commitment.
3: Very good. Um, Right on topic of what we are talking about here today and even in your comments, particularly with regard to 5G, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal today talked about um, the Commerce Department withdrawing some proposed rules that they were considering because the Pentagon uh, pointed out, this is as the story goes, uh, that there were some risks to U.S. industry. Um, of uh, making hard rules for the United States companies to be able to do business with Huawei. This is right at the heart of this intersection of national security interest and how we make sure we have an ecosystem of innovation. Can you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about weighing these pieces together and the role of DOD both as a driver of expressing the need for innovation, Mm -hmm. but also having to worry on the defense side, if you will, about our security?
2: Yeah, and, uh, sure. Look, I, I've been working on these issues for 20 plus years and, and they're never black and white. So you have to be very conscious of not just your first order effect. Uh, that's the easy thing. It's, it's the second and third order effects. And and so we've got to weigh those out very carefully. As I said, we have to play a strong offense. That includes increased R&D. That includes uh, you know, better IP IP policies, as we were talking about beforehand. But it also means a strong defense, whether it's export controls. and. Uh, and, and other defensive measures that we can take to, uh, to ensure that our technology is protected. But we also have to be conscious of sustaining those companies, supply chains, and, and those innovators. So that's the balance we have to strike. There's always a good interagency process that debates that back and forth. And, and uh, I, I think more often than not, we get it right.
3: And you talked about creating, a, I think you used the term, you know, kind of an ecosystem of innovation mm-hmm. or culture of innovation. What do you think your best levers are as Secretary within your own department to try to drive that? Who are you leaning on to help you do that? And what's appropriate for top-down versus bottom-up? Well,
2: you know, the, the common levers, of course, are money and policy and regulations and directives and things like that. Those are, those are easy to, to do. And then there are the innovative things that the services are doing. So, for example, Air Force in the last couple of years has adopted the so-called pitch day, where Uh, innovators, entrepreneurs can come in and pitch ideas and topics and and maybe get some money on the spot. Uh, The Army has done the same thing with uh, Futures Command and and its version of uh, the Shark Tank and whatnot. So the services are experimenting. That's good, and we we encourage that. But the thing we really got to get at, and it takes time, it's it's the most um, it's it's probably the most difficult part, uh, the hardest to change, and that's culture. You have to get the culture right so that folks uh, in DOD, uh, military and civilian alike uh, are willing to kind of Put money down on something that uh, that uh, may not be 100 percent or 90 percent or 80 percent. You got to be able to take some risk, and you got to be able to accept some failure. Uh, you don't want epic failure, uh, but it has to be. Uh, it, it has to be thought out. It, th- we we don't live in a risk-free world, and so you have to manage that piece. So, to me, the hardest part is culture. That will take time, and the test will really come when when something fails, and uh, it fails not because uh, uh, of uh, uh, you know, poor judgment or bad decisions, it fails because it's either the technology wasn't ready or the, it wasn't designed properly and uh, we just need to keep experimenting and we don't overreact to that. We, we allow people to test and fail. That's the cycle we were trying to do in the Army where you, you test, you fail, you test again, you, you succeed a little bit more, you test again, you succeed a lot until you get it right. It has to be iterative, iterative. and so I, I think we have to work at the culture at the end of the day.
3: As a former service secretary, and even those examples you're giving, there's a lot of value in the competition of ideas that can happen from that bottom up. But there is also this concern on the joint piece of it, now you're sitting as Secretary of Defense. How much um, effort or emphasis do you think there needs to be on anything like joint concepts, pushes on the joint side for experimentations out in the field? Um, the role of the joint staff and OSD in terms of thinking about mm-hmm. the future joint warfighter as opposed to today?
2: Right. Well, you know, I'll give you the standard, standard answer. It, it depends. depends. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things we, I set out when I, when I sat down uh, as uh, Secretary of Defense is we mapped out uh, ten or so goals that we wanted to accomplish. One of the first things we need to do is to develop a new joint warfighting concept. And so now the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff is busily working on that. I get updates uh, every several weeks. But you have to have that joint warfare concept, how we will fight in the future not only across three domains, but five now. It's, it's air, land, and sea, space, and cyberspace, and so that you're taking everything in. And that will guide a, a, a lot of how we approach things in different technologies. Uh, take hypersonics, for example, something I mentioned. Um, uh, Heather Wilson, Richard Spencer, and I worked hard to get the, the uh, services working together, right. and that resulted in um, you know, a, an acceleration of our efforts. So now you have, each of the services have a couple programs each on hypersonics, and they're moving forward Uh, fairly well and we're trying to do that across a number of other fields. When when a joint approaches make sense we should pursue them, when they don't we should allow the services to advance on their own timeline and uh, we just need to think through it. To kind of go again with one hard fast rule black or white I think it's too simplistic we just got to think through what makes most sense and, and encourage cooperation at a minimum.
3: Yeah, staying on hypersonic systems, uh, obviously mm-hmm. we know the Russians are, um, have, have, Putin has displayed his interest in hypersonic missiles, the Chinese openly reported have been testing. Um, wh- what's your, uh, your former, former negotiations policy, Dasty, what's your sense of whether there's a new arms race underway and whether there's any um, set of incentives that could bring a, a slowdown or a pause in this acquisition approach from all three of these countries?
2: Well, hypersonics are just another weapon system, right? They have unique features, um, so I, I don't see an arms race per se. Not When I think of arms race, I think of the Cold War, which I grew up in. I don't think we're looking at anything like that, but they, we are always competing against the next generation of weapon systems, and this is one of them. Uh, the United States broke, you know, had the early breakthroughs in this field, and now we need to double down on that and uh, accelerate our efforts. So I don't see an arms race. I think it's another uh, arrow in our quiver that we need to have, and we need to Develop and modify, and based on the needs of the combatant commanders, we will deploy them. Um, you know, in close consultation with our allies and partners to make sure we have that technology available to us.
3: Well, maybe just broadening out then, uh, as you sit down with allies and you talk about concerns in their regions or uh, collectively for the global concerns. Uh, to what extent are some of these emerging areas, biotech to, as you've mentioned, a hypersonic system space, to what extent are, are those conversations starting to revolve around setting our own rules and norms of behavior?
2: You know, it, it depends, depends on, on the technology, technology. obviously. Uh, for, for good, for good, for good reason, reason, there's a lot of concern about AI, how it would be used, uh, what it could do, what it cannot do, and uh, we, we need to have a thoughtful discussion on that. We've begun that within the department is the, you know, the uh, ethical use of AI going forward. It depends on the weapons system. In some cases, we have rules and norms. In some cases, we have treaties uh, governing some of these things. So I, I think we need to look at them case by case and make sure we understand what the impacts are. But again, at the end of the day, my goal is to make sure we have uh, overwhelming overmatch in any number of areas so that we can prevent war, so we can keep the peace. And God forbid if war ensues that we can bring home as, as many young American men and women as possible safe and and, and, and you know, remain victorious uh, at, at the end of the day. So uh, giving uh, – having peace uh, peace through strength, as we know, uh, having those capabilities allows us to deter war and actually preserve the peace.
3: Uh, kind of going back into the department, you mentioned um, acquisition reform and the work that you have had underway. You, talked about it in sort of a, you know, a generational level of acquisition firm. Can you talk about some, some of the key elements that you think are gonna be really meaningful to spurring innovation on the US side?
2: Sure, I mean, we talked about, uh, I mentioned we, have, we were publishing a new acquisition regulation. It's the first time in many, many years to do so. We've had a lot of good support from Capitol Hill with regard to a new authorities. Uh, so we're taking great advantage of the middle tier acquisition authorities. All those things that encourage us to prototype and develop at a much quicker pace uh, within the department uh, we have have our updating our intellectual property uh, rules i think that's very important uh, you know for any company it's your ip or, or your crown jewels and so we want to take a more uh, customer friendly approach uh, corporate friendly approach to that and really think through uh, how do we what is our ip approach in any type of acquisition or development and uh, and and have that negotiation up front in some cases we will want your IP, in some case, and, we'll, and we'll have to you know, compensate for that. In some cases, we, it won't be important to us. So we have to have those discussions, but those are two or three areas alone that we're trying to really capitalize on. And like I said, you know, the services are t- making their own approaches to really draw in those young innovators as entrepreneurs who have cutting edge ideas, and they just need a little bit of seed money to develop them. And I think finding those people are, will be really key to the future.
3: Do we have the acquisition workforce that we need to help us uh, on that journey? The, the contract officers who are thinking flexibly, the training in place, and the numbers? Yeah, we have great
2: people. It's, it's a matter of constantly uh, you know, updating them and making sure they have the skills that are needed for this era. And it's not just uh, technology. They've got to understand what the legislative authorities are. If you're a contracting officer, you've got to understand what our IP policy is so you can contract properly. It's a team approach. In the Army, we tried to approach it by doing, by organizing a cross-functional team so that all the right people were were in those negotiations talking and contributing. So you did all that up front, rather than, uh, you know, in sequence down the line, which tended to draw out the process. So uh, nurturing that workforce, making sure they get out, or, you you know, they they advance their own degrees, they have interaction with with corporate America, with companies and whatnot, helps really improve the workforce. But you gotta stay up to date, and, and that's our responsibility to do that.
3: And you, know, you talked quite a bit about uh, partnerships, partnerships with academia, partnerships with industry. Of course, you, you have a background in all of that. Mm-hmm. What What are you doing? You have predecessors who created DIUX or mm-hmm. had different methods they were pursuing. How are you building in to the DOD system that um, reach out to those partners that create a whole nation approach on innovation?
2: Sure, well, you're right that some of my predecessors Predecessors had some very good ideas, and we're trying to advance them. I mean, we've obviously DIU uh, mm-hmm. I, is out there, Army has the Futures Command, the Air Force is doing its thing. We have the Jake, which is a, a mm-hmm. new development in the last year or so that we're pursuing. And I try and do a lot of personal outreach to CEOs. So I've had any number of sessions with groups of CEOs and individuals where we talk about technology what can we do better as DOD to be more customer friendly, and uh, all those things. You've got to maintain a dialogue, it is a partnership. Uh, we can't keep them at arm's length, uh, them being the private sector in our companies. It's a partnership. It's, uh, it's framed by the contracting that we eventually do with them, but you've got to work together. What we need them is, is to help us think through solutions, not just, not just meet a, you know, a laundry list of requirements. Help us think through the solutions. They know what's on the drawing board. Uh, their technologies in many cases are far more advanced than what we would be uh, thinking about these days as well. So we have to leverage that in a very constructive way.
3: Are you hearing concerns from their end or even from inside the department around the STEM workforce of the future uh, or other skill sets, key skill sets that we need to make sure the United States is uh, nurturing?
4: Not as much about the workforce
2: side. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, we have to continue to keep our workforce updated in terms of professional skills and knowledge and whatnot. Uh, their, their concern, are being – a uh, company is always the speed of our bureaucracy. It's, you know, it's too slow. It's too late. Uh, too rigid, things like that. And, and those are all fair assessments. we just got to do better, but it, it takes time. There are bright spots out there in each of the services and in DOD acquisition, and we just need to uh, uh, promote those folks, those, those uh, initiatives, to make sure that we're showing, showing the, the right example. We're showing what, what good, good
3: looks like. Congress obviously mm-hmm. has to be on board. You, you mentioned that, there'll be, we, that there be that have been some divestments to make room for new investment. Mm-hmm. You hinted that the 21 budget that we hope to see in a month or less than a month will uh, have some of the same Congress is obviously an important partner in making sure you can do that. Uh, do you think there's been a good relationship with an understanding on the Hill about those needs to create the space? to create the space for new investment through divestment of um, legacy
4: systems. Yeah, I I think many members do, particularly those on the defense committees, they understand
2: what we have to do do I've been telling the Pentagon now for two and a half years that our budgets aren't going to get any better. They are where they are. And so we have to be much better stewards of uh, the taxpayer's dollar. And that means, like I said, divesting of legacy things, uh, divesting of things that don't deliver a high ROI, if you will, relative to others. And you know Congress is, is fully behind that, but then there's that moment in time when it hits their backyard, and you have to work your way through that. So, uh, but we have to make that we have to make that leap. We're at this moment in time. We have a new strategy, a very good strategy, the NDS. Uh, we have a lot of support from Congress, and we have to make this. We have to bridge this gap now between what was Cold War era systems and the and the uh, the the, low, uh, the uh, counterinsurgency low intensity fight of the last 18 years, and make this leap. Into uh, a great power competition with Russia and China, China principally. And that requires, a, again, a whole new way of thinking, uh, new warfighting concepts, uh, new technologies. Uh, and we've outlined what those are. And make that leap. And it's going to be hard. And it's, it's, change is tough. And most people don't like to change, but we have to do it if we're going to be successful in the future.
3: The National Security Strategy, not the not the, NDS, yes, the, the National Security, Security Strategy talked about uh, something at the, the time, time called a National Security, Security Innovation, Innovation mm-hmm. Base. Is that the right way to think about the at the broader U.S. government level and whole of society level how we should be moving forward? And and if so, what progress has been made on that?
2: Yeah, I think that, I think that base, base is very broad, broad, broad and, and uh, you can't. It's it's, it's not, not just, just big, big companies. companies it's 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 large companies, medium companies, small companies. It's the uh, young entrepreneurs right now who are tinkering tinkering away in a garage somewhere. We have to find all of them. But it's also our global partners, and we have a lot of. Uh, great companies off off our shores who who do good work for DoD and have good systems, and we need to encourage all that and buy the best systems that we can for our warfighters. So I think that base is very large. We have to nurture it. Uh, one of the things I'm concerned about, I think we talked about beforehand, is competition. We've got to have more than two companies or three companies uh, competing in any one field, whether it's you know radars or missiles, or um, you know um, artillery systems. You have to have a lot of competition. Competition. Uh, drives down price and drives up performance. And so if we lose that competition, that's what concerns me in the long run.
3: So this gets to overall the health of the defense industrial base and the degree to which it's um, the commercial sector, if you will, this idea in general of commercial off the shelf, which we can use for lots of applications. There are some systems for DOD that are pretty specific. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is the state, in your opinion, of the, the defense industrial base as it relates to this more specific set of suppliers and their cha- supply chains? Um, and are you th- do you have folks thinking ahead to how to improve that situation? No, 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 sure, we have
2: a lot of folks thinking about that. And you're right, there there are some companies who do just defense work, right? I mean, not mostly, I should say, mostly defense work. And um, you have to be very careful, though. So we have to nurture that defense base and we have to make sure it's there when we need it. We went through this years ago with tanks, right, armored vehicles. Uh, you don't find those in the private sector except for defense suppliers but there are other technologies where companies can uh, can certainly survive with or without DOD. So you got to be conscious of all that but but again for me it's competition. We've got to be very very careful the competition and if you're a defense company the, the other factor you have is is predictability or I should say lack of predictability because you have you know we've face, we faced um, sequestration for many years, uh, CRs have become commonplace unfortunately and that has an impact on your, on your, your revenue flow if you're a company and so what, what many companies want, the same thing we want at DOD is predictability in our funding is what will it will look like so we can manage our programs over multiple years. When you can do that, uh, it, it allows you to manage your workforce, it, it, uh, it allows you to manage your plant better. Uh, for us, we can manage programs, we can do multi-year contracts, it lowers our price and gives yeah. us uh, more quantity. All those things are important, so there's, we need some predict- predictability, and that's what we need from Congress is, is that type of predictability.
3: Um, okay, I'm going to go to the audience questions now. now. We, we have um, some questions, questions related to, to c- the, the comments, comments you made um, mm-hmm. and are generally discussed mm-hmm. about uh, China mm-hmm. and uh, the defensive side at home, if you will, one mm-hmm. piece of which is about students. What do you think is the right policy we should be Pursuing with regard to restricting students from abroad studying in our research universities.
2: Well, well certainly, certainly for, for defense, defense programs, we, we need to know, know who is who is working on our on our initiatives, whether it's basic or advanced research or wherever it goes. We need to know who they are, and uh, and, and that they're not uh, witting or unwitting um, accomplices, if you will, in terms of technology theft. theft. And it's that's not. Uh, focused on one country, it's multiple countries, but clearly for us the biggest challenge is China because they, you know, they have an organized government plan to acquire and instill our technology. So we need to be conscious of who's in our schools and universities, what they're doing, what their purpose is, and make sure we understand it's just an obligation we have regardless of nationality.
3: Do you think there are things we can or should be doing to attract, particularly again, those STEM field folks who are coming from abroad, to augment what we're, what we're growing here inside the United States? even in defense-relevant areas. Yeah,
2: again, I just think we have to make sure we understand who they are, where they're coming from, or properly vetted. You know, we, we vet people all the time coming into the military to be a, a young private or a young sailor or airman. Why shouldn't we vet folks who are working on our next-generation weapon systems?
3: So we have a question um, related to uh, commercial providers who are utility providers um, off base, but who support U.S. military installations, power, water, telecom. How does DOD plan to help these utilities protect their infrastructure against, um, well, you can, against any kind of, this particular question's on EMP, uh, but presumably on cyber and other issues.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, I, you know, that, that's where it comes to the whole government, government approach. Uh, when, when you talk commercial, commercial sector law, law that's, that's driven by DHS, DHS and other parts of the United States government, I mean, it is incumbent upon all of us uh, to take proper uh, security measures with regard to cyber. It's, it's, it begins with your own hygiene, if you will, by the individual users and companies. So uh, we're, our immediate focus is on our own systems, and then we've got to think about the defense companies, the main providers, and they, most of the big big companies have their own. Uh, cybersecurity programs, one of the things we can do and should do is share intelligence. Um, uh, more of it and more quickly. That will help also in terms of uh, uh, recognizing and then defending against threats. So again, it's uh, we, we have weak points around the country, particularly in the private sector, and I, that's where we, we have to get, make sure we get the laws right, the authorities right, all those things to make sure we can those companies protect themselves
3: DOD's tightened up its, its rules on its, its contracting, contracting base with, with regard to cyber uh, industry I've, I've heard some uh, concerns uh, about their ability to meet those um, rec- new re- regulations, regulations and requirements mm-hmm. uh, are y- have you, have you been, been having similar kinds of conversations, conversations or are you pretty confident that the industry can get there? I have not
2: yeah. heard that uh, from CEOs I met, met with, with. Um, well, you know yeah, I sure. understand the challenge but I, look companies are just as concerned as we are because it's their again it's their crown jewels they don't want their their designs, their ideas, their technology stolen either. Uh, If if that happens, it undermines them as much as it undermines us. So I think they're very protective of it. What we're trying to do is set very good standards so that we know that should conflict happen, that uh, our systems can't be shut down or used against us or or compromised in a way that would uh, impair our effectiveness on the battlefield.
3: Um, very good, that's a good question I already asked you. Uh, here's here's one. one, is there a need for a GIFCOM, Joint Forces Command, like organization to operationalize a truly joint operational concept um, that continually integrates capabilities across all domains?
2: Yeah, my, my initial reaction is no. I'm allergic to more headquarters and more commands. You know, I think it's, it has to be built into the DNA of the organization to, to fight jointly, to fight in that type of manner. I think we do it all the time. I just came from Southcom yesterday down in Miami, and uh, we think all the time about the joint force, and not just the joint force, but uh, joint force augmented by interagency partners and uh, augmented by our allies and partners. So uh, again, down when I was in Southcom yesterday, I met not just our respective component commanders from our various services, but we had several allied officers down there in our headquarters, integrated, and that's the way we need to fight. And, And that's what makes us so successful is we have partners and allies, and not just partners and allies who show up on game day, but who are with us day in, day out, working with us
3: so uh, here's a question I'm going to paraphrase Uh, there are some who I do not think you are one of them but there are some who might um, suppose that we can basically rely on the private sector to do the basic R&D work to create the promising technologies this relates in some ways to your fast follower comment um, that you made during your remarks Um, I think there are others who would argue that DOD has a long history of being a leader in basic research. You did make the point that you have the highest percent of Mm R&D at this point that you have. Do you think that's sustainable? and uh, do you have a way of thinking through which areas are most important in these emerging technologies for dod to invest itself in and where it's okay if you will to be a fast follower
2: sure Well, we do invest in a lot of basic research and it goes through our universities uh private universities and colleges but it also goes through dod organizations uh, but there are clearly areas where we're going to be in a fast follower i can tell you during my time in the army we were chasing constantly the development yeah. in. Communications technology, and it was always getting faster and lighter and smaller. And those are the things you need when you're developing new warfighting systems. So that's one technology. AI is another. Let's say AI is one of our top 11, if you will. And so those are areas where you've got to be a fast follower. Uh, that said, I don't see the private sector on their own developing hypersonic weapons. Uh, <laughs> nor do we all. Knock on wood, yes. <laughs> so, so those are areas where we're going to have to put money in, and, and we're putting a lot of money, billions of dollars, into hypersonics to, to do just that.
3: Okay. Um, we have a couple questions on um, regional issues, uh, specifically a few starting on North Korea. Um, North Korea has claimed a new strategic weapon. How much of a threat do you see that to be, their, their recent launch? Um, um, and how do you think it is possible, in other words, in terms of support to North Korea, potentially from China or Russia, that they have developed uh, the kinds of capabilities they're now developing?
2: Well, they have a, an aggressive R&D program and test program, to say the least, and uh, we monitor it very carefully and very closely. We're conscious of what they're trying to do. Clearly, they're, they're trying to build a long-range ballistic missiles with the, with the ability to carry a, uh, uh, a nuclear warhead, if you will, on top of it. So that's something we, we we're watching very closely. It still remains to be the case that uh, we're pursuing a diplomatic initiative with them, and uh, we think the best way forward is through a political agreement. I will tell you, when I came into office two and a half years ago, we were on the path to war, if you will, with North Korea, and uh, you know the army, everybody was pre- preparing for a possible conflict. And I think the uh, outreach by the president these last couple of years has really forestalled that. Uh, at this point, we need to get back to the negotiating table and really figure out the best way forward to denuclearize the peninsula.
3: There's also a question related to US-South Korean and US-Japanese relations in the context of the Mm -hmm. North Korean threat, but maybe to just tie it into the theme of the conversation today, um, creating the kind of market share to compete with China to include how it affects defense innovation means we have to have allies in the same Mm -hmm. market share with us. how are we doing in terms of making clear that we value those alliances um, and how critical, and making clear to the American public how critical they are for us to compete effectively? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, uh, line of effort number two in the national defense strategy says that we should uh, you know, grow our partnerships and strengthen our allies. And I've spent a lot of time doing that. I've been to the region two or three times now. Every time I meet with my counterparts uh, uh, in, in, in Korea and Japan, I've talked to them on the phone frequently. And then of course with other partners and allies in the region. So we are better off, we are stronger with, with partners and allies who will be there with us, who have the capabilities to be there with us in, in time of need. And we need to continue to nurture that. We have uh, cooperative programs. I know with, with the Japanese, I've met just in the past couple of weeks with the Japanese Minister of Defense. We talked about some of the cooperative programs we're doing today. We do a lot of arm sales between us, all those things to improve our interoperability um and to make sure that we're more effective as uh, as alliance partners for that for that future i mean we're clearly the threat in front of us is north korea but we all recognize that china is the long-term strategic challenge
3: are there advantages to the u.s to having its forces forward in the region in specifically in the indo-pacific yeah i mean it, it's uh, me.
2: the positioning is always helpful in terms of uh, you know you want to be able to reassure partners and allies that you're there committed to the region i think we do a lot of that we we, we either forward base folks or we forward deploy as well. We're doing a lot of that. Uh, it gives you positional advantage geographically, if you will, and that's important. But we gotta make sure it's the right force at the right location. We can't be hung up by uh, you know, our legacy where we've been uh, just because we've been there for many, many years. We gotta think forward, and that's what I'm trying to do is where do we need to be in the future? And so I'm spending a lot of time also uh, cultivating new partners and allies. I've been to Vietnam, I've been to Mongolia, uh, I met with partners from Indonesia and elsewhere, India, very very important country. Uh, so it's it's developing those relationships that will sustain us over the long haul and help us preserve this international rules based order that has just worked so well for all of us for many many decades now.
3: Secretary Esper, those are all the questions that are relevant enough to okay. the topic today. Uh, I really want to thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, really such a pleasure to have you. I hope you'll come back to CSIS again. Please everyone remain seated while the Secretary departs, um, but please join me first in a round of applause. Good. Thank you. Thank you. in the green
5: room. And I am uh, glad to see so many of you here, obviously to hear about our report uh, alongside uh, the secretary's remarks from our global security forum this year. Uh, We looked at the topic of uh, emerging technologies governance. We have lots of people to thank whose insights we polled for this. It is a very broad coalition. Uh, In fact, I think when you look at this topic set, it gives you a sense of just how daunting it is in terms of uh, the number of folks you have to, to talk to to get your hands around it. everybody from venture capitalists to, to diplomats, lots of people outside of standard geographies where Washington's attention has been, has been focused. Uh, the report in full is available on our website right now. So if you go to www.csis.org or follow any of us on Twitter, you'll surely see it. Uh, look forward to your comments. I know there are lots of experts in the room today with us as well. Um, So let's start with the definition of what we were looking at, and I think what's different about this report versus what you're already reading and consuming on a daily basis about defense technology is the use of the word emerging technologies, which we took in a very broad sense, and if you look at some of the examples of the emerging technologies that we looked at, They're very different, everything from things on the biological sciences, life sciences side, all the way up to hypersonic weapons, very specialized defense applications, lots of things in between where not only is it not a core competency or a core market for defense traditionally, but it's no longer an area in which the United States is necessarily a a first mover. So emerging technologies, and then the second word of the report, governance. So inside of governance we looked at how is the US federal government approaching all of these emerging technologies so across agencies and departments not just department of defense looking at strategies processes resources laws and regulations standards institutions bureaucracies and then of course the international dimensions treaties frameworks and agreements Based on our discussions through a series of workshops we had and interviews, including a series of scenarios looking at very different technologies in the 2020s timeframe, looking at uh, sort of where biosciences may go, what the threat dimension might be, looking at where IoT uh, and cybersecurity paired with misinformation, disinformation, what that future sort of homeland scenario might look like, and finally, looking at the idea that China in particular might beat the United States to a critical military application of a technology in a novel way, which was AI, and all of those scenarios are included at the, at the back of our report if you're interested. But based on that, we came to, uh, we came to, to think about, um, sorry, five findings here, one slide back. Which is, uh, this is a truism, but for some, for some it, it, including myself, it had to sort of be proven that there's not uh, any institutional single fix. Uh, just bringing back, for instance, an Office of Technology Assessment for Congress doesn't fix the issue uh, in this technological age, which is that fundamentally, across all of these emerging technologies, expertise is outside of the government, and day by day, that is the case. So how does the government then tap into that expertise? How does it build the core knowledge it needs internally to even ask the right questions externally? There's also across government we found looking at governance, how, how is the government managing emerging technologies there's an uneven and decentralized approach. That doesn't mean there are not some excellent examples of success inside of DOD, outside of DOD, of great initiatives that are going on, some of which will be discussed on the next panel. But what we have found is that it's very uneven across departments and agencies. And frankly, from the White House down, there's very weak governance. So if we think about technology as being key to the future of geopolitical competition, economic security, national security, the, the adjustments within government to raise its profile to the level of the White House, to coordinate, to create uh, budget authorities, to move those from OMB into somebody who can more closely monitor where resources are being spent. We're not seeing that. And then thirdly, impossible to forecast end use. Uh, Today marks uh, since 1984 was the uh, introduction of the Macintosh computer. Um, Would we have guessed the end use of that computer through today? Uh, Twelve years from the iPhone forward, would we have guessed what would happen then? The answer is no. So impossible to forecast end use places a premium on real-time monitoring, real-time scanning. Uh, Rising tensions an obstacle to everything I mentioned before. So in a government-to-government sense, it's not just US-China. It's US-EU. It's US lots of emerging nations, uh, US-Indonesia, US-India. Many countries are competing now about technology, about protectionism, about localization requirements. And there's also increased public-private tension. If you look at the kinds of hearings that are on Capitol Hill about technology, most of the time they tend to be um, calling people to the mat in a a punitive way, not in a forward-looking or collaborative way. That's just one indicator. And finally, when we look at export controls, um, we have found that not only in historical cases, but in current cases, Uh, Restrictive controls are largely self-defeating. That doesn't mean controls are not important. It means that they need to be used as a finely calibrated tool, uh, because otherwise, uh, as in the Huawei 5G example this morning, um, it will disadvantage U.S. industry uh, to to shrink the market size, to cut it off from the international market. That said, this leads to the actions, which is number one, identify must-win technologies. As Secretary Esper uh, referred to, we do believe that there are a handful of technologies or applications of even existing technologies where, once realized, those could uh, create a a sort of exponential uh, advantage that uh, gives countries not only an economic but a national security advantage on the global stage. So understanding what those are and understanding where the U.S. must lead and where it cannot afford to be a fast follower is important. Broad diplomatic engagement. I think the, the maybe a, a surprise to me, uh, maybe obvious to, to others of you, is what a huge role the State Department and standards organizations and others have to play on the global stage. Right now, in the subgroups of standards organizations you've never heard of, the future of the use of technologies is being set. And the reporting, by and large, is that you've got five Huawei people in the room, maybe. And if you're lucky, one US company in the room. And there's no government to to private sector coordination or little. That said, organizations like NIST are playing a key decisive role behind the the scenes, National Science Foundation and others. Uh, Parts of the bureaucracy we don't usually think as having really important future national security implications are. They're doing good work. So thinking about how to reinforce that with diplomacy, major changes, major major considerations for the State Department. Innovate models for public-private partnership. Almost all of the models that are out there for public-private partnership as of now once again, are uh, more sort of uh, punitive or uh, they lack incentives for the private sector. There are uh, examples to that. Um, there are some interesting cases that, that came up in our conversations. One is uh, the, the idea of uh, the Asilomar comp- Conference on Recombinant DNA in 1974 as a key moment where scientific, public, and private communities came together, thought about a revolutionary technology, thought ahead, thought about how to cooperate. Uh, lead uh, the leadership in energy and environmental design, sort of voluntary standards organizations. Uh, an organization that came up time and again in our conversations was the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, GIF CT, which is an industry led consortium but allows a lot of sharing on uh, counterterrorism between uh, platforms um, and storage providers and others and, um, and, and government. So, th- so there are good models, but the question of how you scale those, how you create new incentives uh, that are naturally going to draw private uh, companies to the table, good question. Fourth, focus on the human dimensions. That was something that really came across in the scenario exercise. Who is the future workforce? Looking at it from an immigration and talent perspective, also looking at it from a vetting perspective, as people have more and more access to more and more sensitive technologies, are we really keeping tabs on, on who these people are? Um, in, in a, in a, it, within the confines of our democratic system, how we would do that. There are lots of examples. Can we translate that to things like the booming bioeconomy? Better deploy existing resources. Uh, the, there really was not a lot of, um, you might be surprised to know, people asking for more RDT&E or more funding. Everybody always likes that. More is better. Uh, but it was much more about how do we take what we already have and efficiently channel it, efficiently channel it to those must-win issues, and then track where we're spending, where we're spending, tracking where the government must spend money, where industry does not have incentives. Uh, IoT and cybersecurity are are great, great uh, issues there to, to, to pull at. And then finally, prepare for surprise and crisis. And this came across again and again in the scenario exercises we did, was we simply cannot forecast where these technologies are going. And so the ability for the intelligence community to play a key warning role, but more than that for the range of private firms that are involved in the tech space and in the tech security space to be able to rapidly channel information uh, and to be, be prepared, and then of course to be prepared for those black swan events you cannot possibly prepare for. So thinking about issues like uh, trust in information, I'm sure Suzanne will will talk about this a little bit. Her scenario group really got into this. Um, What what is a trusted source of information? How do you position trust in a pre-crisis environment? So a lot more uh, in terms of concrete examples and findings uh, in the report. Um, But without further ado, I would like to turn it over to Andrew Hunter on his panel that's going to dive into these issues uh, a little bit deeper. Andrew is the Director of our Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and Senior Fellow in International Security Program.
4: Well, thank you, Sam, and uh, I was glad to be able to participate in some of the discussions and uh, congratulations on the work that your team did and put together that report along with Dr. Hicks. Uh, I am pleased to be able to uh, moderate a panel discussion to go a little deeper on the topic of uh, emerging technology governance uh, from a, a wide variety of perspectives. And really our goal in putting together this panel was to bring you uh, a diversity of views about how this might work, because I think uh, as probably is already and will certainly be apparent through the discussion it's really a team effort Uh, and we've got a lot of folks with a lot of different perspectives who are going to have to find paths forward and paths ahead continuously over over years in this process so I'd like to call the panel forward uh, and I'll introduce you as you're coming forward and getting seated Uh, so please do come up and uh, I'll kind of uh, introduce you in the order that hopefully you will be seating (laughs) First up is Suzanne Spaulding, uh, who is a senior advisor here at CSIS uh, on Homeland Security as part of our International Security Program, Uh, and she is, um, uh, as I said, here at CSIS now. Suzanne served as the Undersecretary for National Protection and Programs Directed at the Department of Homeland Security, where she was effectively uh, a CEO with a four-star rank. She managed a $3 billion budget and a workforce of 18000 charged with strengthening cybersecurity and protecting the nation's critical infrastructure. Um, She's advised uh, throughout her career CEOs, boards, and government policymakers on how to manage complex security risks across all industry sectors. She also spent six years at the Central Intelligence Agency where she was a legal advisor to the Director's Nonproliferation Center. She is now a member of the Aspen Institute's Homeland Security Group. Uh, former chairman, uh, for ch- former chair of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Uh, and uh, also serves on a number of other uh, boards and uh, that really study these uh, processes very closely. Uh, also we have Jason Matheny, who is the founding director of the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University. Uh, Previously, he served as the Assistant Director of National Intelligence and the Director of IARPA, responsible for the development of breakthrough technologies for the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, And before that, he has worked at Oxford University, the World Bank, the Applied applied Physics Laboratory, the Center for Biosecurity, uh, and Princeton University. Uh, He was the co-founder of two biotechnology companies. He is a member of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Uh, and also the National Academies Intelligence Community Studies Board. Uh, next, we have um, General Brigadier General Benjamin Watson, United States Marine Corps. Uh, he is uh, currently the commanding general of the Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory, Futures Directorate, and is uh, uh, co-dual-hatted uh, as the vice chief of naval research and the Office of Naval Research. Uh, he is a, uh, uh, an infantry officer uh, and has served uh, numerous uh, deployed tours in Yugoslavia, Kosovo, OIF, and OEF. Uh, and then we also have Gabrielle Burrell, who is Minister Counselor for Defense Policy, uh, the Embassy of Australia, a uh, close ally. Um, uh, she has served in that role since uh, 2017. Uh, and facilitates Australia's defense and security relationship with the United States, including through the strategic dialogues such as the uh, uh, Australia-U.S. ministerial consultations, better known as OSMEN. Uh In 2016, as Assistant Secretary for South and Southeast Asia uh, within Defense's International Policy Division, she was responsible for delivering policy advice to government and regional, bilateral, multilateral defense engagement Uh, and the Defense Cooperation Program, which I think will be an interesting point of focus in our dialogue today. So thank you all for joining us, and I'm going to leave the podium uh, and come join you in the chairs, and we'll get our discussion started. Thank you all uh, for, for joining us for this uh, panel discussion. And uh, as I mentioned, this issue of emerging technology governments is really a, a team game. And what you all bring to the, to the discussion is your different perspectives uh, based on your backgrounds and your current roles uh, for how the different players in this, uh, what they bring to the table, what, what issues they face, uh, and how they can work together. So I'm going to ask each of you to maybe give just some initial thoughts uh, on this topic. Uh, from your different perspectives, and then we'll, then we'll do a, a lightning question round. But Suzanne, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off.
6: Sure, Andrew, thank you. Um, I, I do think, I, think uh, I wanna commend Sam and his team uh, for taking on an ambitious uh, effort to you know, come up with guidance on governance of emerging technologies, because that is a massive topic. And I do think that while it's, uh, they've come up with uh, some very useful kind of ways of breaking this down and, and thinking about this, that it is important uh, to sort of disaggregate some of these concepts, particularly when we're thinking about governance. So for example, I think, you know, as you begin to think about governance structures and, and principles, guidelines, uh, it is important to recognize what are the goals of that govern- governance, right? So are we talking about Governance uh, to ensure or strengthen our economic competitiveness, uh, which obviously at some point be, you know really uh, begins to uh, have significant impacts on our nation, national strength uh, and ultimately on our national security. But national security, as we've talked about it in this context, can sometimes uh, provides be in competition with or tension with. Uh, an economic innovation or economic competitiveness objective. Sometimes they're in sync, sometimes they're not. So disaggregating that becomes important. Are we talking about governance to uh, ensure consistency with our values, with our ethics, with our laws? Uh, because that also is a, a another aspect of this. So I think it's important at some point to step back and sort of figure out what what the goal of this particular governance conversation is. And then I think, uh, and then typically what we do is we talk about roles and responsibilities, right? So our governance is about who's going to do what. And uh, this was an issue at DHS that was constantly uh, talked about in terms of the role of the government, for example, versus the private sector, versus state and local governments. And it was always who should be responsible for what. And my response to that was always, let's start by looking at comparative advantage. So as we're looking at how we're going to set up our governance structure and who's going to be assigned what roles, I think if we we think hard about who has the comparative advantage to accomplish the things we need to accomplish, so what are our objectives, what do we need to accomplish, who is best positioned to do that, then once we've established that, then we can talk about who should pay for what. Right? But those things often get conflated, and so it's can't ask the private sector to do that. It's not fair to ask the private sector, for example, to defend themselves against nation-state adversaries. Uh, that should be the government's responsibility. Well, if you're best positioned as the end, at, at the end user uh, as, the, as the target to do it, you should do it. Now let's talk about you know, how, how do we pay for that. Uh, think of comparative advantage in terms of, you know, what are the comparative advantages of government? We, we can perhaps bring a longer term perspective, which is one of the reasons we think about, for example, the government funding basic research. You're not going to get a return in the next quarter. So the private sector, you know, doesn't have the comparative advantage there. <coughs> From a financial perspective, the government does. But doesn't mean the government does that <coughs> Excuse me, research. Right? So again, thinking about who has the comparative advantage, then who should pay for it. I think those are important. And finally, think about governance uh, of disruptive risk. I was on a blue ribbon panel for the National Association of Corporate Directors on how to govern in in the context of disruptive risk. The same lessons we tell the private sector apply to the government as well. right? And it is the kinds of culture things that Secretary Esper was talking about. You need to have a structure that can move quickly and with alacrity. You need to be able to take, you need a culture that will take risks and that can accept failure. Those two things are not things, areas where we think of the government having a comparative advantage. Government is not particularly well at moving quickly or, uh, or being able to accept failure, right? So, so let's think about that in terms of what we might ask the private sector or states. States are much more innovative than the federal government is. Should we be looking to states more for, uh, for, for ideas in governance? And then finally, last thing I would say, and what we said to the private sector in governance of risk, uh, is the notion that you can't predict it. You can't predict what's coming. Sense Your best thing you're gonna be able to do is sense what's happening now, and we could do a much better job of that. Focus less on threats and vulnerabilities, which are unlimited as you think about risk management, focus much more on consequences. There are a limited number of consequences that we really care about. If we are prepared to mitigate those consequences, then it doesn't matter what causes them. And you're much better positioned, I think, than to deal with disruption from emerging technologies. And I'll leave, leave it at that.
4: Thank you. Jason.
7: Great. First, uh, my gratitude to Sam and Kath and their team for writing such an excellent report that I've, I found so difficult to, uh, to find points of disagreement. Um, I wanted to highlight a few areas of uh, commonality among the CSIS report, uh, the National Security Commission on AI's uh, first report. Uh, and CSET's uh, initial reports on AI and national security. Uh, First, the observation that the speed of technology development is often outpacing our national and international governance structures. Um, The observation that the commercial sector now plays a primary role in driving most of the technologies that are most consequential uh, to national security. Um, Third, the need for strong technical intelligence on our competitors and their capabilities and technology to avoid underestimation, but I think also just as important and just as costly overestimation of capability. Uh, The need for carefully balancing export controls and foreign investment controls uh, with our own economic interests, uh, given that the costs that those can impose uh, on US firms. Uh, Our dependence on diplomacy to advance collaborations with democratic states on research Uh, and on standards, and I was so grateful to to Sam for emphasizing the importance of often obscure standard-setting bodies uh, that uh, the U.S. has, I think, at great cost, often ignored. Um, So I'm I'm deeply grateful that that's now part of the security discussion, thanks to CSIS. Uh, Technology diplomacy also extends to our competitors. So just as the U.S., Russia, and China have a mutual interest in nuclear security, Uh, and nuclear safety, we also have a shared interest in AI safety, Uh, and we need to begin those discussions uh, in a way that uh, helps us avoid uh, strategic instabilities. In addition, I wanted to highlight three findings from the National Security Commission on AI and its interim report. First, semiconductors (laughs) are central to U.S. technological competitiveness. Uh, and are a bottleneck technology affecting most of the other emerging technologies uh, on Sam's list uh, in his first slide. Uh, The US and its allies have a global lead in semiconductors. For example, the United States, Japan, and the Netherlands produce 90% of uh, the world's semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Uh, But that lead requires continued investment. Second, the US needs to make fundamental improvements to the government's IT infrastructure uh, and our methods for procuring and deploying software. Uh, The commission drew attention to the Defense Innovation Board's recommendations for creating a new color of money for software procurement. I'm happy to see that gaining support within DoD. Third, there are opportunities to develop technologies that deliver asymmetric advantages to democracies. These include technologies such as homomorphic encryption, federated learning or distributed learning and differential privacy, uh, systems that reduce the advantages that authoritarian states have in centralizing data uh, or in keeping data unencrypted in plain text. Uh, Last, I wanna highlight three advantages um, in US um, uh, security and technology policy that CSAT has identified uh, in its research. The first is that most of today's AI systems were not built with security in mind. Um, They're brittle, they're fairly easy to break and spoof uh, using fairly primitive attacks. In fact, it's become sort of a favorite parlor trick of freshman computer scientists to break the latest uh, (coughs) state-of-the-art classifier that's on the market. Most systems um, require substantially more uh, AI security investment in order to withstand attacks from uh, intelligent adversaries, and we haven't built Uh, our systems in mind with that kind of need. So we need to start baking in robustness and security from the start so that we don't end up in the place that we are with, say, internet security, where we're spending billions of dollars a year retrofitting security. Second, the US needs national test beds for testing uh, AI um, on a level playing field. And Sam mentioned uh, NIST, one of my uh, favorite uh, US agencies that has a critical role Uh, in um, assessing uh, the reliability, safety, and security of AI systems, but is severely under-resourced to perform that mission. Uh, Third and last, the US depends on high-skilled immigration to attract and retain the world's best talent in science and engineering. Most of Silicon Valley's mathematicians and computer scientists are immigrants. Most of our country's billion-dollar startups and technology have immigrant founders. Um, This is a historical advantage of the United States that has um, been uh, one of the primary reasons that the US has a technology lead in so many areas. Uh, That lead could erode though if we don't take steps to ensure that uh, immigration policy doesn't work against our ability to attract and retain global talent. I would would also um, argue, and I would love to um, follow this up in discussion, uh, that high-skilled immigration might be uh, the U.S.'s greatest comparative advantage uh, relative to China in technology competition.
8: Thank you, Jason. General. Hey, uh, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be part of such a distinguished panel. I mean, the couple rules, uh, you know, I don't know how I ended up sort of as the Marine Corps futures guy, sort of uh, driving S&T for the service as a, a history major and infantry officer with an operational background. so. Uh, I've been learning and trying to learn fast um, but uh, it's a challenge and the second rule I learned uh, when surrounded by such a distinguished group of uh, of folks in a place like this where you're on the record is to flatter the audience so I did want to say what an incredibly good looking group of, young men, of <laughs> young men and women are out here with, with clearly very distinguished backgrounds and uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here you know it, I'll, I'll talk just a minute on on things that I was asked to relative to the service. And I represent sort of the Marine Corps. Um, As you know, General Berger uh, issued sort of a very thoughtful uh, commandant's planning guidance this past summer. Uh, Some found it, you know, very uh, innovative, in in some ways very provocative, but it sort of uh, set the headlights for where the Marine Corps as a service will go in building to what we consider the 2030 force. it's designed to better align the Marine Corps underneath the National Defense Strategy and Defense Planning Guidance, and also fundamentally integrate us uh, with the Navy. And we're very, now very focused on building that 2030 Marine Corps, and I would expect to see some, some decisions come out here as we enter posture season uh, pretty soon on what the Marine Corps is going to focus on in terms of divestments uh, and, and investments to build this future force. So you know, consistent with the Commandant's vision and and the family of naval concepts that we operate under, distributed maritime operations, littoral operations in contested environment, and expeditionary advanced base operations, we've developed uh, a maritime CONOP, a concept of operations in partnership with the Navy, and and we use that pretty broadly, and we've developed, you know, sort of a pitch and a visualization of that, Uh, and the concept describes sort of how uh, new fleet marine force units of employment would operate uh, as part of a naval expeditionary force uh, to support uh, sea denial or sea control, uh, focused primarily on our principal adversary that, that Secretary Esper talked about uh, in the Western Pacific um, in the prosecution of a naval campaign. And we use that to describe the tactics, but also the capabilities and the technology investments that we believe is needed to develop the 2030 force uh, to be competitive. And we use that uh, to drive our, our engagement with industry. Uh, academia, allies, partners, and, and other services, and particularly in the discussion of uh, technology. So my, my job at the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab is sort of to, you know, to not just refine the concepts and the technology requirements that support those, but to conduct you know, sort of iterative war gaming, uh, live force experimentation, and to some extent on the more quantitative level modeling and simulation to provide sort of the data backbone uh, to justify our investment decisions uh, and provide a basis for our conversations with with partners and allies. Um, industry partners are really central to our tech development efforts, particularly for, uh, for a smaller service. And we have a number of venues that I'll briefly touch on to, to drive that. Uh, we maintain through the Office of Naval Research, and it's a partnership under the Department of the Navy, you know, uh, the bridge is me as the Vice Chief of Naval Research, uh, but we have a broad area announcement that we maintain through ONR that identifies sort of broad tech Capabilities uh, that the Corps is looking for help uh, from industry in developing. Uh, we have some pretty broad international reach uh, through that close connection with ONR uh, because, as the Vice Chief, I'm able to leverage the efforts of ONR Global, uh, which has an international network that supports sort of active engagement with both public and private sector, research industries, universities, etc., um, across the globe. Um, we have uh, a, a fairly robust science and technology office with a technology initiative screening office that that conducts market research, that attends various forums across the globe, uh, and maintains an open door to industry uh, in an effort to engage. We've got an expanding partnership with what used to be DIUX, now DIU, the Secretary Esper mentioned, uh, represented in Mountain View, uh, Austin, Boston, and D.C. and our Rapid Capabilities Office stays closely linked in with them uh, as a venue to our engagement with industry. And then we stay pretty closely tied in with the other services, the Air Force Research Lab, um, Army Futures Command, et cetera, because as really as the smallest service, um, we've got to think very carefully about how we place our bets on emerging technology. And that's not to suggest risk aversion, but simply that you know, we have a limited amount of money to spend and so when we can ride on the efforts of other services that have more money, particularly when you talk about basic research and even into applied research, uh, wait and see the military application as it develops and then make decisions on where we're going to, um, where, where we're going to place our investments. It, it has advantages in terms of economies of scale, uh, but also for the joint force in terms of interoperability uh, going forward. And then lastly, and perhaps unique to the Marine Corps, you know, I know the US Air Force I mentioned has a pitch day, the Army has their shark tank, we have what we call advanced naval technology exercises. And these are events for which we solicit tech solutions from both government and private industry uh, in response to technology gaps that are associated with a very specific concept of operation. Uh, we then bring those technologies and those technologists into uh, a central location for live force experimentation. Uh, and demonstrations where the tech developers, be they from government to private sector, are asked to perform simulated tactical missions under field conditions, uh, and they're collaboratively collaboratively evaluated by teams of operators and engineers. Uh, past examples of these antexes have included um, fighting the naval force forward, ship to shore maneuver. We've focused on urban operations, things like that. For this next Antex upcoming, uh, we're partnering with uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, RDT&E, uh, with the Naval Warfare Development Command, Fleet Forces Command, uh, and the focus on that will be on naval integration in a contested environment. So uh, C2 in a denied degraded environment, counter, C5ISRT, uh, naval fires and effects, etc. Uh, and I'll, I'll just wrap up with sort of so, balancing kind of the requirement to protect national security interests with the need to leverage the best available minds and organizations to innovate, you know, it, it's a challenge, as has been discussed. Personally, uh, I, I think we err too much on the side of widely overclassifying. And I think that particularly applies to the realm of ideas, uh, vice specific technologies. Uh, and I think that, where that really hurts us is in our engagement with allies and partners. We develop concept of operations that are fundamentally predicated on access and on relationships and collaboration, cooperation uh, with allies and partners, but we classify these things with a no foreign level. Uh, it doesn't allow us to discuss these con- the very concepts on which allied and partner support is fund- you know, is predicated. So um, I think we need to, to think very careful about that, engage in a thoughtful discussion of what needs to be protected from whom, Um, And also, what specific interests uh, and capabilities are to our advantage to either reveal or or conceal uh, globally? There's always the danger that the right information is going to fall into the wrong hands, but we need to be careful that we aren't protecting ourselves more aggressively from our friends than we are from our adversaries. So, thank you. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Gabrielle.
9: Thank you for that no fawn point. (laughs) It's dear to to our heart. Uh, And I'd really like to thank um, Kathleen and Sam and Andrew for shining a light on this really important issue and for integrating allies into the discussion, and also for the people here uh, who are part of the community. uh, Before I did uh, the international policy job, I did three years as the Assistant Secretary working uh, over the export control uh, regulation. I did not expect to be discussing that work at all during my three years here in DC. And what's really surprised me is that I've spent at least as much time Uh, talking about that constellation of issues of how do we protect sensitive technologies while not stifling innovation as I have about you know the the geostrategic work that I've done so it's a really interesting time and I I see a huge um, a huge uptick in interest and I think the people who who have a a knowledge uh, and who can communicate it in plain English are so important at this point in time because there's a lot of newcomers coming in and the work that we do to help them understand uh, what's in place and what needs to be done is vital. So, from an Australian perspective, uh, we are absolutely immersed in the dynamism of the Indo-Pacific region and its rapid technological development that's driving that growth. It's enabled by global scientific collaboration and open access to technology. Uh, But as everyone in this room knows, there's implications in that for regional and global security. So, a lot of uh, our time in in the Australian Department of Defence is around how do we adapt our legislative and policy settings, Um, but something we've particularly focused on that I'd like to uh, really highlight today is the work that we've done on our behaviours as a government and also uh, what the relationships are that we need to succeed. So the first relationship that I wanted to to highlight was around the, uh, the whole of government relationship. Uh, We're much smaller than the US, so whole of government is much easier. Uh, But nevertheless, it's only in recent years that we've really had our national security agencies uh, coming together with our agencies that work on the innovation piece uh, to deliver um, better outcomes for for stakeholders. And I've I've got a practical example with me that um, I'm happy to share with people if they're interested. Uh, We came together to do a countering foreign interference uh, essentially guidelines for universities. Uh, it was a demand signal for the universities. There's been a lot of publicity in Australia about countering foreign interference, and the demand was on government to provide um, some assistance. It, it's been a truly whole-of-government endeavour. Um, the product itself, I think, is is something that we're quite um, you know proud of, but the product is, is not really the best thing. The best thing is all of those um, discussions that we had in developing the, the product, all of the new networks that have been created across government, and then with the, the sectors involved. So that's a really important uh, part of what's going on in Australia at the moment. Uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about was uh, government's relationship with those that we regulate in industry and academia and uh, some of the panellists have raised some of the, the issues, very real issues that we face there. Uh, and again, I'd like to, to take a, a practical approach. I have another a document that I've brought if people would like to have a look at it. It's a sensitive technologies list, and it came out of uh, feedback that we had uh, from industry and uh, particularly dual-use industry and the university sector. Uh, where they said, look, you, you know, as a government, you can't just give us a 300-page um, sensitive technologies list and say goodbye and good luck. Uh, you know, you're going to need to help us to understand the risks that we're carrying and understand how we can mitigate those risks. So, you know, can you give us just a short document that really, in a nutshell, tells us what you, the Australian Department of Defence, see as, uh, you know, really crown jewel technologies that, that you, want, you want protected? And our initial answer was, oh, um, sorry, but uh, we have classified lists and we can't, we can't share those with you. And to their credit, those stakeholders said, that's just not good enough. Um, and so uh, we had to turn ourselves inside out, uh, but we've actually managed to provide an unclassified list. Um, I don't think the things on that list will be a surprise to anyone in this room, uh, but certainly it has helped uh, very much with our, um, our dialogue with the people we, uh, we regulate. But I think it's also demonstrated to them that uh, if they engage with us, we can actually work through these issues together. And I have to say one of the most rewarding uh, things that I saw during my my tenure in that work was um, the day on which a researcher would kind of stop sitting back and being a skeptic and start leaning in and saying, well, why are you regulating that and not this? You really need to regulate this. Do you you realize what's coming down the pike? So I I just put that forward as a really um, practical example. The third uh, area I wanted to touch on is our international relationships, and uh, particularly uh, some of the most lively conversations I see are practitioner dialogues, Uh, and whether it's our our service colleagues in our Army, Navy, Air Force, whether it's our Defence Science and Technology group, our Capability Acquisition and Sustainment group, if you put practitioners in a room together uh, from different countries, they're all grappling with the same issues, Uh, and I think that we get a lot of collaboration coming out of Those discussions. Something we're really excited about at the moment is the US decision to include Australia as part of your national technological industrial base that came out in the 2017 NDAA Uh, and how that is implemented is really going to, to matter in terms of how big a difference it makes in leveraging Australia's innovation sector as an ally. Um, So I guess what I'd like to close with is is just the point that the cooperation between our nations in terms of the sensitive technologies we develop uh, is so important. And alongside that, the cooperation between our nations on how we protect those sensitive technologies is equally as important. And I'd just like to hark back to um, Sam's previous comments about uh, you know there are a lot of people working in both of our bureaucracies together on those issues. And I think uh, today's uh, discussion is a, is a great example of highlighting that.
4: Great, thank you very much. Um, OK, we're going to turn to our question round here uh, among the panellists before we turn to the audience. Uh, and I want to start with a question It has a little bit of a prelude and a, and a presumption in it, and it's a rebuttable presumption. So if you think the premise of the question is wrong, feel free to dispute it. Uh, but the premise of the question is that, again, uh, dealing with emerging technologies, leveraging emerging technologies, managing the technologies both for good and for ill, for uh, for mission success and for risk, uh, is, a, is a team effort, that it's not something that most organizations uh, can do alone. That's, that's the, the presumption. It's rebuttable. Uh, and so my question, and I'd be happy if each panelist would uh, kind of engage on it from your perspective, is what do you see for the organizations that you either re- represent or that you feel that you support uh, in your role? Uh, what do you see as the things that are critical that your organization has to receive from outside uh, its own capabilities, its own organic uh, awareness uh, and an ability to manage, and then uh, what do you see that your organization brings to the game that others need, that you can really provide to other organizations that they may struggle to do uh, without your involvement? So, Suzanne, if you wouldn't mind start.
6: Sure, uh, you know, I think I talked about the importance of being able to sense what's going on now, um, as I think much more important than trying to predict uh, what's around the corner. Uh, it, so often we are reacting to lagging indicators. And so we're, we're just, we're behind all the time. So that requires sort of sensors, and I use that term very loosely, uh, out there helping you sense what's in the world. I used to talk to, at DHS to my team about the sort of utopia I envisioned was, was kind of like that spider web where when there was any perturbation anywhere in the field out there, we would sense it. We would all sense it at the same time, uh, and we would know exactly who had what capabilities to, to respond or to address it. Uh, so sensing and sense-making, that requires no one organization, no one office, no one capability is going to give you that broad situational awareness. That absolutely requires that you take advantage of all of the sensors, all of the ways out there that you can sense things, whether it's through your employees as a private sector or government entity who are out there living every day, um, or your private sector folks and their networks in uh, the cybersecurity context, what they're seeing and, and getting and, and, uh, you know, uh, every day in terms of their sensors. Um, and so that shared situational awareness. So you absolutely have to have that ability to pull together information and as my fellow panelists have all uh, said in one way or another, that means we have to be, as a government, more willing and ready to share information and insights ourselves. And the overclassification is a huge issue. Um, I want to, uh, you know, particularly footstomp the emphasis on uh, building to our strengths. You know, we get afraid, we get scared, because we see China advancing on some of these technologies and there, there are sometimes a tendency to say, should we be more like, the, more like China? And I think it's really important that we play to our strengths. When Russia engages in information operations to undermine public trust and confidence in democracy and democratic institutions, not just elections, but the justice system, etc., they are playing jujitsu. Right? They are trying to get us to use our strengths of open marketplace of ideas and freedom of speech, even robust speech on social media. They are trying to get us to unilaterally disarm, to, to weaken that, right, to clamp down on information. Uh, and we need to resist that. And so we need to play to our strengths, the strengths of that uh, openness and transparency. Um, I think one of the most important things we need to do in sensing the world out there and responding to it is acknowledge the vanishingly short shelf life of secrets. Um, The ability to keep a secret for any significant period of time is over. That time is over. And we have to, and that has implications. So instead of focusing so much effort on protecting our information focus a lot more effort on rapid innovation. When I talk to private sector entrepreneurs, as often as not they tell me they don't even bother applying for a patent. They are assuming that their competitors are gonna at some point get hold of and reverse engineer whatever it is they've done, and they are instead going to rely on rapid innovation, on their workforce, on their ability to be agile, Football coaches who actually put their playbooks online because they're going to rely on the skill and talent of their players are showing us the way. That is the strength. We are much better prepared to live in that transparent world that is upon us than our adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Who is better able? So if we train to fight in the light, just as if you trained to fight in the dark, you could turn out the lights and have the advantage. If we train to fight in the light, if we learn how to operate with fewer and fewer secrets, we will prevail.
7: Right on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, I agree with your proposition and uh, what Suzanne just <clears throat> said uh, is, both so inspiring, and I think so accurate, and I think that if democracies double down on their asymmetric advantages in democracy, uh, their commitment to uh, transparency, to open debate, uh, to the rule of law, and uh, be more like the democracies that they are, um, then they will have great advantages that are sustainable. Um, I do think that this is a team sport, and, a, and just to give two examples where teamwork uh, has been essential. The AI Commission has had hundreds of meetings with representatives from government, industry, academia, NGOs, international partners, um, in order to get information and advice. And we would not have been able to find uh, the kinds of results that we've been able to publish had we not had those exchanges. So I think that is a that is an advantage of of having a commission that's willing to engage uh, as widely as, as this one. Um, at CSET, we also are uh, a team that's depended on an eclectic mix of data scientists, translators, technologists, uh, economists, statisticians, uh, international relations scholars. Um, and I think it shows that when you bring data and expertise to some of these questions, you can get evidence-based answers on some very complicated questions related to technology strategies.
8: Thanks. I I just, uh, and again, this may be a little surprising coming from the uniform member of the panel, but to pile on a quick comment on on the issue of classification as well, you know, I guess from my perspective, we we can't even manage all of our own information. So good luck to the adversary managing all of theirs and all of ours (laughs) on top of it. Um, Particularly, you know, we have trouble making sense of it and using it to good effect across multiple levels of of classification. So, um, you know, although certainly artificial intelligence you know, ought to help us, uh, and the you know, and, and that's really ubiquitous. I mean, that that should help as the technology matures. But but nevertheless, that's a bet you know, and a challenge I'd be willing to to take. Um, I think in terms of you know what we'll be looking for, sort of from industry. I guess I would pile on. You know, Secretary Esper, I wrote it down, made a comment that you know we need we need them to help us think through uh, the problem. You know, sort of develop a solution, not just meet a requirement. You know, and that's one of the reasons the way we've approached this. Uh, with General Berger's guidance, is to kind of develop a concept of operation. This is how we visualize uh, the future Marine Corps as a part of a naval force uh, fighting over the, you know, in the next 10 years. And then you know, here are some of the critical technology areas we see as gaps, uh, but, but help us think through that problem. Don't just meet a demand for a specific piece of technology, but help us think through how to become better, more interoperable, uh, more effective. Um, so that, to me, I sort of characterize that as the adult conversation. I mean, I feel like and often in, engage pretty regularly with, with leaders in industry, and, and we often sort of tap dance around each other. Uh, it would be helpful to understand from the perspective, particularly of a private sector company, you know, what, what, what are their strengths and weaknesses as they see them? Where do they believe they can really help? Um, and, and, to, and for them to, to be willing to partner, to collaborate with other companies, with their competitors. Uh, Because systems are often complicated these days, and and often one company that's trying to pitch a system is not really the expert in in, in every facet of that system. So, you know, it would be one of the most compelling pitches I've gotten recently was just this week from a company that came in uh, with that acknowledgement and suggested that they were the integrator. That was where their strength was. But they were going to source the best pieces of technology, the best, you know, sort of... Uh, data, you know, backbone from other companies that they acknowledge were better in those particular areas and that their, their role would really be to integrate this and to represent it as a system. Um, I think uh, one sort of spe- specific, but I think any time if you come, in General Goldfein has been, been known to, to articulate this really well, but if, um, as Chief Staff of the Air Force, but if, if you're coming to represent a, a system or to pitch a system and it doesn't share, uh, across systems and it doesn't learn, uh, then really not interested uh, in talking to you. And then if you believe today, you know, that if it can be sensed, uh, it can be targeted, and if it can be targeted, then it can be destroyed, uh, then I would suggest that just about anything that has a signature, whether that be a signature in the you know EIR, EOIR spectrum or, or cyber, uh, you know, or the electromagnetic spectrum or otherwise, then don't build the system without building a decoy because the ways to keep things survivable is either you reduce the signature or you sort of elevate the floor uh, so that things blend in amongst the clutter. And, and helping us to do that and baking that in to the systems uh, would be very helpful. And then I guess what we, would, what we offer would simply be, uh, as I mentioned earlier, would, would be access and transparency in terms of what we're looking to, what we're trying to do, not just what we want. Uh, And the fact that as a relatively small service that, you know, I think we have a certain agility and ability to iterate in experimentation and learning, uh, perhaps uh, more so than some of our larger counterparts. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
9: I really endorse all all the comments that the the panel has made and and perhaps to extend Suzanne's um, sensor analogy. the, the role that different expert communities can play in helping us, un, helping us refine our understanding. Uh, I was at a dinner a while ago with our Australian chief scientist, a room full of uh, scientists from across the US um, community. The guest speaker was uh, someone who'd been, you know, working on AI since the 70s. And uh, he was commenting on some of the hype and, you know, what's not real. and. And the room just erupted, and, and it was this sort of pent-up emotion from all of these people who know so much more than the rest of us on the topic, um, but sometimes have trouble getting heard and, and, and getting their point across as to you know, where is the exquisite technology that we need to, to, to protect against, and where is just a distraction uh, that, that we shouldn't be you know, going down a rabbit burrow with our limited resources.
4: Well, I had a second question, but I'm mindful of the time. And you've all been very patient in the audience uh, and listening to a great discussion. So not too much patience required. But I would like to get to your question. So I'm going to transition to that now. Uh, And we'll use the more traditional CSIS method at this point of you raise your hand if you have a question. We'll bring you a microphone. Uh, And so please do raise your hand. And if you're the person chosen, let us know who you are and ask a brief question. Uh, I chose to ask one question to the whole panel, but you can target your question if you'd like. Uh, So hands up. We'll go here. Thank you. I'm Eric Hirshhorn. I'm a senior advisor here at CSIS, also a former government official. Uh, And this is for Ms. Burrell. Um, I was intrigued by your guidelines for universities and your unclassified list of technologies for universities. And what I'd like to know is, what is it you ask them to do
8: with that?
9: You mean in terms of what their responsibilities are? Yep. So, their responsibilities haven't changed. There's, there's export control regulation in place and there's other, other, other regulation in place. Um, so, so uh, a lot of our conversation with them has been, we need you to uh, be more serious and more informed about how you manage risk. And one of the things we've done to try and unlock that is to try and uh, take a more modern approach to regulation, uh, which rather than just sort of saying, here's your problem, go and fix it, is to say, um, what do you need to help you do what we need you to do? And part of it also has been about how to communicate that in a way that resonates with them. So you'll find in these documents, uh, it acknowledges the importance of, um, of the innovation sector and, and that we're not trying to stymie innovation. Uh, it then goes on, though, to talk about the risks and the risks that they carry. So things like uh, IP, uh, reputational damage, uh, and so forth. Um, But then really what it's saying is, here is the information that you've asked for in order to help you do what what you're responsible for. And uh, and that underlying regulation uh, uh, hasn't changed. but the thing that we are working through with the university sector in particular at the moment and, and dual use industries is how do we make regulation implementable? And uh, you, you, you might may or may not be aware, uh, a number of years ago uh, we were at absolute loggerheads uh, trying to work out how to regulate intangible transfers of technologies. Um, And and the comment was, this is unimplementable. I think we have learned and they have learned through the implementation process um, that actually sitting down and having a conversation about how uh, regulated parties uh, can implement their regulation uh, leads you to a place where as a government, you're being more honest about what you're asking people to do and whether it's possible to do that, um, but also for those regulated parties, it makes it clear to them you know, why we're asking them to do it, uh, but also helps them understand their responsibilities in a more, um, in a more detailed way than if, than if we're not doing that engagement.
0: Over here.
8: Hi, my name is Eric Snyderman. I work for CISA at DHS, but I'm also a veteran of our foreign investment risk management process here, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. So my question to all of you, there's been export control reform, but we've actually expanded the authority of the U.S. government to screen and and also block investments in U.S. companies. Do you think that there is a government role in shaping the market in these kinds of sensitive technologies, and is it Um, one that prevents others from trying to carry them off, or one that encourages people to develop them for us.
4: All right, so uh, investment controls and and how aggressive or how actively the government should seek to actually shape um, industry uh, through the use of of those controls. Who would like to tackle that?
7: Jason. I think uh, think the US government does have an appropriate role here, um, in part because there are market failures where individual companies may not recognize risks to security in isolated cases uh, that collectively represent a, a serious risk. So they might be concerned more about the risk to the individual company or an individual investor, uh, but not to the mosaic created by a range of technologies. So I was really happy to see the um, expanded authorities for CFIUS thanks to the perma legislation. I also think that um, our export controls Uh, have been, I think, relatively careful um, recently. Uh, For example, I was pleased to see that um, the export control on AI technology that came out recently was very tightly focused on one particular application to geospatial analytics. Um, That said, I think we do need to make sure that we don't overplay our hand um, on things like export controls. Um, or entity listings, uh, which can have second or third order consequences that actually work against our longer term strategic interests. I would say the entity listing of Huawei, for example, uh, is likely to induce China to double down on its own domestic supply chain for semiconductors, which then reduces our strategic leverage later. Uh, So that could actually place us in a worse position in the long run. Uh, This is an area where we need much more deeply strategic thinking within government about the long term consequences.
6: Yeah, I I think that's right. And and just picking up on the second and third order effects of of, uh, the policies with respect to Huawei, I was recently out at the Consumer Electronics Show, and I was talking to a group of uh, folks uh, about the work of the cyberspace solarium, on which I sit, a a commission that Congress created. Um, And one of the things that we're talking about that came up uh, today is uh, that we need a more robust presence at the standards meetings in these standards bodies, uh, uh, particularly from the government uh, perspective. And the pushback I got from folks who are engaged in these conversations is that uh, to some degree they have been restricted from being part of conversations around the development of important standards because of the, the uh, policy uh, with respect to Huawei. That they are not, they are, they, they now feel they can't be in the room with if Huawei is there, and Huawei often represents the Chinese government. So I do think, I mean, I just want to again echo your point that we need to be strategic. We need to be thinking not just about immediate effects. Um, And I just uh, want to thank you for the work you're doing at CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, and congratulate you on finally getting a name that tells people what you do.
4: (laughs) Okay, other questions? Um, I wanna be equal around the room, so let me, okay, let's come here.
8: (laughs) Hi, David Winks with AccuSight. As we think about changes in weapon systems like uh, weaponized drones and hypersonics, and defending against those uh, using, say, lasers and high-power microwave directed energy weapons, that's driving a need for lots of power at the tactical edge. And uh, that's one of the topics I didn't see addressed today. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and then also how, to de- how we would defend against those very weapons from our adversaries. I suppose that one's to me, huh? I, I would I'd love it if you
4: would jump in on that, General.
8: I mean, you know, it's, it's I think, as, as much a statement initially as a question, and then that really is the challenge, you know, size, weight, and power as you get into, you know, there, there are huge advantages in things like directed energy weapons, uh, lasers, unlimited magazines, and, uh, but getting those into a, a form factor that is, is mobile um, with the power uh, to make them effective uh, is difficult. I think I'll use that as, as a little bit of a, a way to make a pitch for one particular area that's a, sort of a pet rock of mine, and that is, uh, you know, I, I think when, when we talk about particularly operating far forward, um, you know, inside you know the adversary's you know sort of weapons engagement zone, or, or far from our shores, and the fact though that in this day and age, considering you know um, you know all, all of the dimensions of conflict, the fight though will start at home and, and challenge our ability to deploy forces. Uh, from the United States, then we've really got to look at things uh, like how we manage logistics forward and starting with things like how do we get off of fossil fuels completely. I mean, you want to talk about really disruptive change uh, and things that will, you know, the funda- fundamental uh, advantage to whoever can tackle that problem first. I haven't found a lot of interest in industry in, in tackling that problem. It's, 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 re- it's really uh, a really difficult one. Um, I don't think that, I think, you know, as Secretary Asper said, I don't think most of these weapons, though, uh, you know, fundamentally change e- either the nature or the character of war. Um, they perhaps change decision calculus uh, when it comes to, you know, things like escalation ladders uh, based on the speed with which, um, uh, you know, or the lack of time uh, once they're sensed uh, to potential effects. But I, I think they're just evolutionary. Uh, in terms of their impact on conflict, not not truly revolutionary. I don't know if that really answers your question. It's my first stab at it.
0: Here.
3: Hi, Anita Balachandra, Tech Vision 21. Just picking up on that last point, and for you, Brigadier General, you just made the point that um, that enabling this greater, more efficient power management and, and being able to manage more power is gonna require um, greater capacity with a smaller form function. That, in turn, requires manufacturing capabilities which are almost wholly absent from our continental US. That piece, that in between kind of prototype and, and full-scale production, development and manufacturing know-how and manufacturing IP is a piece that I think has been missing, and I wonder if you could address that, uh,
6: particularly for electronics.
8: I'm going to phone a friend first. Does anybody else want (laughs) to open that space? I mean, you know, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question. It's a fair point. Um, I, I think that... You know, sort of it speaks to perhaps your point earlier, you know, or the point that somebody made that, I mean, we cannot, I mean, I think it's I don't know, probably factual that we cannot compete in today's, you know, world, I don't think in any, in any domain uh, without the help of the international community, without international students, research scientists, uh, and without not, you know, the US industrial base doesn't have the capacity absent uh, the global sort of industrial base or abs- absent help from overseas to produce what we need it to produce, to innovate at the pace and scale that we need it to. Um.
9: Actually, just to add to that, I mean, from an Australian, the, the thing I've found living over here is, you know, as an Australian, you're in a small country, you're often looking elsewhere for, you know, what do we need? I think for the U.S., you're so big and you've got so much capacity and and so much reach that um, sometimes, you know, where they're saying we, we might have something that's useful and it and it's it's kind of cutting through on that sometimes takes a little a little while and that's why I mentioned the the national technological industrial base work before because I think, you know, on a good day there really is. Um, recognition but I just think uh, when when you are the superpower who who brings so much might um, it's probably quite sensible that you you think about what you what you bring first um, unlike uh, some of our other countries where where we our first thought is you know who who can help and and what have they got
4: yeah I I can't resist but noting that uh, it brings to mind the rare earth materials which has been an issue access has been an issue Australia is a great source there's critical intellectual property that's held in Japan for uh, developing some of the key uh, you know, components that go into uh, some of the generation systems. So that just seems like a pretty relevant example. Well, uh, I have bad news, which is that we've come to the end of our time for this discussion panel. Uh, but I want to very much thank the panelists uh, for deeply engaging on the question. I really enjoyed the discussion, and I hope that the audience will please join me in giving you a round of applause.